Oh, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Uh, If you're joining us on our podcast, I want to take a moment and welcome you. Uh, If you are watching or watching, listening on our podcast, uh, you can subscribe to it by searching on your podcast app, South Suburban Christian Church, or you can go to our website at southsuburban.com. If you're in the uh, uh, worship center today, uh, you might notice that the cleaning crew forgot to come through, Pastor Drew said at the first service, and uh, this is not actually true. Uh, Ash, uh, Lent began with Ash Wednesday. Pastor Drew led us and preached uh, last Wednesday evening, asking us the question, what is God inviting you to lay down so that you can receive what God has for you? And so folks have been coming, and they've been laying stuff down, and uh, I'm intrigued in the, in the ability to see into your lives. Poker cards, candy, um, snacks, technology, no good cell phones. I think y'all just went and got an old cell phone. We were kind of looking for for new ones, but that's all right. I do want to share with you over here, my daughter was uh, at the first service, saw this right here, and she knows that I love Fritos. This isn't mine, by the way, especially with that nasty plastic jalapeno cheese. I love that. And Ellie, our, th- our three-year-old, said, Daddy, that's not for you. I was like, who's it for? She said, that's God's. So, uh, hey, we invite you throughout the rest of the season of Lent. If there's something that you'd like to bring, we'd like to continue welcoming that up here. Uh, there's some baskets here with some pens. And if you don't want to bring something, uh, you can write that down and lay it up here and, as your sign of being able to lay something down. Uh, for uh, the opportunity to receive what God has for you. Um, Over the past year, uh, Sean and I have really enjoyed getting to know all of you, especially those of you uh, who, like us, have small kids. Um, Some of you are younger than me, but that's all right. And um, one of the things that we've heard over and over and over again is is I have oftentimes encouraged folks, hey, we really want you to get involved in a small group. That's where connections make. That's where you can get into God's Word. And, and I appreciate the comments. You all have said, uh, but you don't understand, Pastor Rick. I, I can't come out in the weeknight. You know, what are we going to do with our kids? All those sorts of things. We get it. You know, we want our kids in bed by 8.30. And that's not just because we think our kids should be in bed by 8.30. It's because we want our kids in bed by 8.30 so that we can actually talk. But uh, so starting next week, uh, we're going to be launching a new small group that Sean and I will lead initially. It'll be right after this service at noonish, depending on how long the preacher goes. And uh, we'll uh, have childcare. I mean, we, we can't be, you, you can't invite young families to come and be a part of the church and activities in the church if you're not providing childcare. So we're going to have childcare and we're going to have lunch for you initially as well. And so if uh, you would like to be a part of that, Pastor Joe, right over here, will be at the Welcome Center following the worship service, and he can answer any questions that you might have and get you squared away. And I know Sean and I are looking forward to being able to be with you and uh, get into God's Word with you during this time as we go through this season of Lent. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is the text we're going to be looking at today. Um, the, uh, uh, as we begin Lent together, um, we want to uh, begin uh, looking at 
where all of this began. So if you found Matthew 4, Pastor Drew reminded us uh, that our posture is important, what we do is important on how we show God that we respect him and to respect his word. So if you're able, would you be willing to stand as we read God's word together? See, I'll even show you. You can hold your Bible and stand at the same time because that's what I'll do with you as we look at Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest your foot strike against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to the devil, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <laughs> During the uh, season of Lent, our focus this year is on breaking expectations. We will be looking at uh, some of these stories in the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at ways Jesus broke expectations. Now, lots of us come to life and to our faith with certain expectations. I mean, when we got married, we had certain expectations of what that was going to be like. When we had kids, we had expectations of what that was going to be like. When we, when we uh, uh, get a new job, there are certain expectations. And the truth is, is that when we come to faith, when we come to a place where we want to be a follower of this man named Jesus, a believer in the one true God, there are certain expectations that we bring to that. It's all just, it's, it's human nature. It's a natural part of what it means to be human. But following Jesus brings new discoveries. We see God do new things, unexpected things, things that can change our lives forever. So I want you to be prepared. Be prepared this Lenten season, this season of Lent, to have your expectations broken. Today we're beginning on the passage that the whole season of Lent is based on. All of the tradition, many of the traditions that we get around Lent come from this text. So for example, Jesus is in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. And so Lent is 40 days long, which is uh, reminiscent and reminds us of the 40 years that the Hebrews spent in the wilderness. This time of prayer, of fasting, 
are, that Jesus did are the same things we're seeking to put into our lives as well as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, this story of the temptation is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. Now, there's four gospels, but three of them are called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are essentially a synopsis, if you will, of, a, of, of sort of the same events, but from a different perspective each of them brings. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this story in it, although Mark's version is really short. It's only two verses. As a matter of fact, Mark just says, and Jesus went and was tempted, and, and, and then we just go on with the story in Mark, whereas Matthew and Luke spend a little bit more time unpacking what actually happened during the temptation. Now, one of the interesting distinctions, though, that Mark says is Mark says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And that word actually could be better interpreted, kicked, that the Spirit kicked Jesus into the wilderness. That's not so bad. We've all had a swift kick from the Holy Spirit from time and again. It's not all a bad thing. But when Matthew and Luke present it, they use a much nicer, gentler word. They say that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Now, this is important, particularly for Mac, uh, uh, Mar- uh, Matthew, because the word led conveys this idea that Jesus goes willingly into the wilderness, breaking expectations. That Jesus willingly takes upon himself this season of fasting, this 40 days of fasting, preparing for the temptation. Now, before we get too much into the actual text itself that was read, let me just share a little bit about Matthew's, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, which is the first gospel in your New Testament, is written to Jewish believers, uh, that is, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ, and to some degree, Jews who are not believers. That is, is that Matthew's goal here is to show that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He's the successor of King David. And therefore, Jesus is worthy to be followed, worthy to be believed. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the king, King Jesus. Now, my question is, what would you expect from the king? Not just from a king, but from the king. Throughout Matthew's gospel, the writer is going to quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. He's going to use a phrase something like this. He's going to say, and this happened to fulfill what was said in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. This happened to fulfill what the prophets said. Matthew also does a lot of comparison in his gospel. He compares Israel... And for that matter, we could just think about you and me in that idea. That is, is the people of God. He compares the people of God with the person of Jesus. And typically, it is, see how unfaithful the people of God are. See how faithful Jesus is. See how disobedient the people of God can be. See how obedient Jesus is. See how the people of God are concerned about their own issues. See how Jesus is concerned with the things of the Father and the things of those that follow follow him. Another thing that Matthew does a great deal in his gospel is he talks about the kingdom of God. 
or the kingdom of heaven. And that's sometimes used a little bit interchangeably. And, and someday we'll, we'll talk about how that connects with some of the other gospels. But, but what's important here for Matthew is, is well, the, the word kingdom. That is, is that a kingdom has what? A king. And therefore, this is about the kingdom of King Jesus. So if you decide to spend some time this week, which I know all of you will, right? If you're going to spend some time, man, I'm so grateful that uh, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ, I'm interested in how Matthew talks about Jesus' life. So you might be the kind of person that's going to spend the rest of this week engaged in the gospel of Matthew in your daily disciplines, reading through Matthew. Matter of fact, it's, it's one of the suggestions in your notes, which are available out on the stand next to the Welcome Center for this message. Pay attention to these things. Pay attention to how Matthew talks about King Jesus and the kingdom of God as you do this through your private devotion. Well, let's look at the text. Jesus has just spent 40 days fasting when the devil comes to tempt him. Now, in this passage, if you were following along or if you picked up on it, there are three terms or three names that Matthew uses to describe this this, this being, the devil. One of the words that Matthew uses is the word devil. And the word devil literally means uh, one who slanders or the slanderer. The other, another word that Matthew uses is the tempter, that this individual is the tempter, the one who tempts us. And the third word, which comes from Jesus himself, Jesus gives to him his proper name, which is Satan. And Satan, the name Satan, literally means the adversary or, adversary or the accuser. Now let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to suffer for 40 days in preparation for your time to be locked in a room all by yourself with somebody who's referred to as the tempter, the slanderer, and the accuser or the adversary? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anywhere near somebody like that by myself in a room or in the wilderness locked up with him. Now, Matthew wants us to know that this being, the devil, the tempter, Satan, is up to no good. Jesus is hungry. He's tired. He's worn out. But he's the king. Jesus knows he's the king. The devil knows he's the king. And you and I know he's the king. So what would we expect from the king? When the devil comes, he actually comes with a satirical tone in his voice. As a matter of fact, if we didn't know the devil, if we had never heard of him, and you didn't hear his words read with my voice of, 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 of condemnation and shrill, and you just read it for the first time, you might think that the devil actually isn't all that bad. Because after all, what he's trying to do is alleviate the suffering of the king. Now, I'm going to add the satirical tone, because I don't want you to miss this. So the devil says to Jesus, Oh, you're hungry. Hmm, well, everyone knows you're the king. Command these stones to become bread, and your suffering will be over. 
Well, what would we do if we were in that situation? What would you do if suddenly you had the ability to use your power, your position, your wealth, your resources, the folks you know, to alleviate your suffering? What would we expect of the king? Well, the king understands that his victory is in his suffering. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from 1 Peter. If you'd like to follow along with me, that would be great. If not, uh, write it down so that uh, you can come back and, and look at it sometime this week. I'm going to give you a couple of passages. The first is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, you need to remember, I know you know this, remember that in the ancient world, suffering was a sign that God had abandoned you or that you were being punished. The idea was that if you were good with God, if you and God were tight, y'all had your relationship worked out, then you'd be wealthy or you'd be popular or you'd be blessed, you'd be living the good life. Suffering was a sign of sin and therefore... It was something that you and I should be ashamed of. That's why Peter continues in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, now that's an important phrase here. If anyone suffers as a Christian, and this doesn't mean that you know, if you go out and, and, and you break the law and you're arrested and you say, oh Lord, why am I suffering? Oh, it must be for good because I know the reason you're suffering is because you broke the law. Or you might slack off at work and your boss cuts your pay or, or demotes you or worse, lays you off. And you say, oh, how can I be suffering for this? God must be doing something good. No, you're suffering because you, you, we, you, or, you or I didn't do our job. That's not the kind of suffering Peter is talking about. The kind of suffering that Peter is talking about is suffering that comes from the fact that we're followers of Jesus Christ. And in that case, if you're suffering because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter says, let him or her not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, suffering according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, if you read your New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you're going to see that Peter, who wrote 1 Peter, and Paul don't always get along. See, see church folks have been arguing, not just, not just recently. They've been arguing the whole time, even in the Bible. But here, Peter and Paul agree with each other. Turn now to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, or write it down in your notes so that you can go back and look at it later. One of my favorite scriptures is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, primarily because I have a really good friend. He and he, we, we've been friends since college. His name is Pastor Steve Smithers, and uh, he and I were in residence life when we were in college together, and, and every time something bad happened to one of his uh, 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 residents on his hall, he'd say, ah, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. Builds character. And everything, every, every time something bad happened, builds character, builds character. And that just resonated with me. And this isn't something that Pastor Steve thought about. This is something that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, 
we rejoice in our suffering. Rejoice? Is that what you expect? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It does, doesn't it? And endurance produces character. And character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, it's not what I enjoy doing. It's not what I would expect from somebody trying to convince me to follow them. Hey, you want to follow me? If you do, you'll suffer. Yeah, not the best method, is it? But sometimes suffering is a normal part of life. It's just what it means to live in a broken world. And other times, suffering is a result of following Jesus. But in both cases, our suffering serves to actually advance the gospel. How we suffer, whether we do it with hope or whether we do it with regret, speaks volumes to the world. There seems like there's almost something intrinsic about the human condition, something about me and you that when we look at suffering or when we look at people who do suffer, how they suffer can either encourage or discourage us. How many of you don't know somebody who's gone through a difficult time in their life, who suffered the death of a loved one, who suffered the loss of a job, who have suffered in their life, but they've done it with hope, character, endurance, integrity? And how much doesn't that encourage us? When we see people who suffer with faithfulness, it tells us something about who they are. And the same is true here in this temptation story. When we see Jesus suffer, when we see Jesus allow himself to be confronted with the tempter, the slanderer, the accuser, we see not just his suffering, but we see the truth of who he is, the fullness of his willingness to step into the brokenness of creation and experience the same things that we experience. It isn't what we'd expect. Probably isn't what we would do. If any of us could change the bad in our life, wouldn't we do it? If any of us could stop the suffering in our life, wouldn't we do it? The regret in our life, the mistakes in our life, wouldn't we do it? Surely the king could. Wouldn't the king do it? But he didn't. And not only did he not use his power to alleviate his suffering. He reminded Satan of the word that Satan already knew. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Expectation broken. Next, Satan takes Jesus to the temple. And since Jesus decided to quote scripture to Satan, Satan decides to quote some scripture back to Jesus. You probably know folks like that, don't you? Two brothers or sisters in Christ who sit down and quote scripture to each other. Not as a way to build each other up, but a way to tear each other down. I have a good friend who's a, I have have a few good friends, by the way, 
But one, two of my good friends, one's a Baptist preacher and one's a Lutheran church preacher. And man, both of them love to quote scripture to show everybody else that they're wrong. I've told them both. I said, I'm going to lock you all into a room, let you all quote scripture to each other and see who comes out first. And this is what the devil is doing. He's quoting scripture, not to build Jesus up, but to tear him down. We all have people in our life that do that. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, when the preacher first preached on this passage, it scared the daylights out of me. You see, my mom was the kind of mom that was really intentional that I memorized scripture. You can actually tell when I memorize scripture based on what version of the Bible I'll tell it to you. So if I quote scripture in the King James, that's scripture my mom made me memorize. If I quote in a more modern translation, it's something I picked up myself. I can tell you this, I probably know more scripture, I've memorized more scripture in the King James Version than any other version. That's the gift of a mom. But one of the things that really struck me when the preacher first uh, preached on this text was that the devil knows scripture too. As a matter of fact, you might say that the devil might know the Bible better than you do, at least in his familiarity of it. And that's frightening. To know that your adversary might know the Bible better than you. What are you going to do about it? Anyway, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this pinnacle is the highest point of the temple. Uh, it, 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 uh, you, you, you may not have seen photos. Or, well, not, I'm sure you haven't seen photos. Or you might have seen a picture of the temple in the time of Jesus, but it stands on this temple square. And it's right next to the wall, which this wall goes down into a, a, an area called the Kidron Valley. And, and from the top of the temple to the bottom of the Kidron Valley, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 to 600 feet. Now, I know there's some engineers or some architects in here going to send me an email correcting my math here. I'm just guesstimating and going on what somebody else said. But 450 feet is about 41 stories. It's 41 stories from the top of the temple to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Now, if you were to fall 48 feet, which is about four and a half stories, you'd have a 50% chance of surviving. If you fall seven stories, your death rate goes up by 90%, up to 90%. Now, it's clear that if Jesus had done this, this would have been such a spectacle that it would have made his work a lot easier. Or would it have? I think Jesus knew what awaited him. I think Jesus knew that he would be rejected. Even in light of the miracles that he would do. He'd give the sight. He'd give sight to the blind. He'd cause the lame to walk. He'd even raise the dead a couple times. You know, it's one thing to benefit from a miracle. It's quite another thing to come to the realization that this benefiting of a miracle now requires you to make a decision. It's one of the reasons Jesus does his miracles. It confirms his authority. It confirms who he is. And if he can do these things, if he can heal the sick, if he can give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, cause the lame to walk, raise the dead, then therefore what he says has to have some authority. If he can do these things in my life, then what he says about how I ought to be living my life and what he says about who he is, I have to take serious. And it may require a decision on my part. 
But is this what would have happened? Is this what happens with most people? My experience with most people is they take the healing, but they don't want anything to do with the change of life that that healing now invites us into. As a matter of fact, that's my expectation. My expectation is is that I strike someone, they're going to hit me back. My expectation is is that if I insult somebody, they're going to insult me back. But here's what the king does. The king welcomes us in spite of our rejection of him. That's not my expectation. That caught me totally off guard. An old preacher once told me that in his study of history, every group that was persecuted, once they gained power, they became persecutors. Now, I'm all for lifting up the marginalized, giving power to the powerless, but history has shown us that no human being, no race, no creed, no nationality has ever been able to handle power very well. Democracy, that is, is that the rule of all of us together, always is pushing itself towards oligarchy, that is, is the rule of a few, or plutocracy, that is, is the rule of the wealthy, by the wealthy. When Jesus was on the cross, after having been beaten, spat upon, rejected, abused, abandoned, forced to carry the cross that was rightfully mine to carry, after having nails driven his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns thrust down upon his brow. On that cross, he now looks down at those who had brutalized him. And at that moment, were hurling insults at him. What would you do? What would be your expectations? But this Jesus lifted his face up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Expectation broken. Finally, Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He shows him the power and might of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire that will come after them, the Ottoman Empire that will come after them, the Holy Roman Empire that will come after them, the Portuguese Empire that explored the known world, the Qing Dynasty of China, the Spanish Empire, Tsarist Russia, the Mongol Empire, the British Empire, maybe even the United States of America. And Satan said, all of these... I'll give you as if they're his to give to begin with. All of these I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. What would you do if you were given unlimited power? 
growing up, my dad would take me to the barber shop every Saturday morning, whether we needed a haircut or not. And I know dad didn't need a haircut. He was bald. The reason we went to the barbershop wasn't necessarily to get our hair cut, but to sit around with all the other men at the barbershop, and they'd talk about politics, the economy, the arms race with the Soviets, the local high school football team, the mayor's decision in hiring the new chief of police or the city manager, because we all know the town was too small for a city manager. And every single one of those men at that barbershop believed that if they had the power, if they were in the position, they'd do a better job at running the town, running the state, running the country, running the world than the folks who were actually doing it. <laughs> they'd say things like, well, if they'd put me in charge, I'd fix that. I'd fix this. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? How many of us haven't said the same thing? It's what we'd expect, right? You and I both know. In this place right now, let's just be honest, absolute power never changes anything. Wealth never really changes anything. If, if anything, it normally makes things more complicated. In 2002, there was a man named Jack Whitaker. You might remember the name. He won the lottery that year. This was really poignant to me because he just lived down the road from where I was serving back in 2002. He won $315 million in the lottery. He decided to take the payout. When you take the payout, you don't get as much. He only got about $170 million. He gave 10% of his winnings to his little church in southern West Virginia. Within a few years, that church closed, having torn itself apart by greed and anger. Now, now, I know what we're saying. If that happened to me, Pastor, I wouldn't do like Jack Whitaker. Well, I'm with you, because if any of you men win $170 million, you want to give 10% to church, we'll take it. We won't mess up like that church did, I promise you. <laughs> you see, that's what we all do. But you know what else happened to Brother Jack Whitaker? Within a few years after having won all that money, his granddaughter died of a drug overdose. Her boyfriend died of a drug overdose. And his daughter was murdered. And to this day, they've never been able to figure out who killed her. He thought it would be cool to carry around cash. So he carried around $500,000 in cash in his truck. Somebody broke into his truck and stole it. So he learned his lesson. From then, in, then on, he only carried $200,000 in his truck, and that was stolen out of his truck, too. In 2012, when he was being interviewed, through tears, he sobbed and said, I wish I had torn up the ticket. Now, I know what you're thinking. The same thing I'm thinking. I know what you'd expect if you had that opportunity. Well, if that happened to me, Things would be different, but they probably wouldn't be. You see, Jesus understood that the king's power isn't in position or wealth. The king's power is realized in his humility. 
Power doesn't come through prestige. It doesn't come from authority. It doesn't come from money. Real power isn't given to you by some demon who entices you to bow down and worship him. True power, real power, eternal power comes from humility, from forgiveness and serving, not being served. Expectations broken, shattered. Now listen, if you've picked up some hints from Jesus about how you can overcome temptation in your life, praise the Lord. But that is not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is not to give you five ways that will help you be victorious over sin and death. The point of this text is to show you Jesus for who he is. The Son of God and God the Son, the King of Kings, who is about to embark on his ministry that was planned at the moment Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, and he invites you and me to walk with him toward the cross. This is what makes Christianity different. God doesn't tell you how you can get to him. God comes to us. You see, it's through the king embracing suffering, risking rejection, wielding the weapon of humility that vanquishes sin and death because he makes the way of the cross the way of life. And you know what? He has you in mind as he's sitting in that wilderness ready to meet the accuser. He has you in his mind and he loves you and he has saved you and he holds you in his hands, hands so powerful that the devil whom he defeated and who obeyed his word when he was told to depart, that devil can't touch you, can't tear you away. Now that's good news. Not some trite words of encouragement that, oh, you can do it, you can overcome temptation. No, you can't. No, I can't. But Jesus has already done it. Jesus has already grabbed you and held you in his harm. And he said to the power of his darkness, leave him alone, he's mine. Leave her alone, she's mine. That's the good news. Expectations broken. But you and I have been welcomed, even though we have rejected. And his suffering has made the way of life. We're about to come to this table where we are confronted with his suffering, broken bread poured out cup and in his brokenness we are healed we are told by the scriptures to remember the word remember means to remember put back together at this table Christ wants to put you back together mainly back together with his father will you come I give to you as it was given to me that on the night our Lord was betrayed he took a loaf of bread and after he had given thanks for it he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying take eat this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in like manner, when the supper was ended, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks for it, he gave it to them, saying, 
this is the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As oft as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Will you join us now in prayer as we ask for God's blessings upon these sacred elements? Holy God, your son was tested for 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus taught us to seek nourishment in your word, to worship and serve you alone, and to commit our lives to your providence and protection. Pour out your spirit on this gift of bread that it might transform our hearts of stone in the name of Christ. Merciful God, you give us the free and abundant gift of your grace so that sin and death have no dominion over us. Bless this cup, the cup of salvation, that we might know your gift of forgiveness and receive life in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Receive them in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.